When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome once again, fight fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Sean Bastow, joined as always by Johnston Brown. And we're back for another episode based around the Olympic game boxing teams, and we're sticking with the theme of the USA boxing teams. We're going to take it back to 1976, arguably the greatest Olympic boxing team ever, compared to the 1984 episode which we covered last week. Now, before we get in to the 1976 Olympic Boxing Team episode, of course, I want you to go and check us out on social media, on Twitter, at BTR Boxing Pod, and on Facebook, the BTR Boxing Podcast Network, for all our latest episodes of each series that we're running, which includes the darker side of boxing, legendary nights, career profiles, and ones to watch. Now, if you've not rated the podcast or reviewed the podcast, please go and do it on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us that review. It's truly important to us. It really does help us and we really appreciate everybody that's been rating and reviewing us over the past few months because it's truly helped us get to that number one spot. So, without further ado then, this is the next episode of the Olympic Boxing Series. This is the 1976 USA Olympic Boxing Team. So it's the 1976 Olympics in this episode and after the success of the 1984 Olympics for the USA team we decided what better way to continue the series by doing the 1976 one because everybody makes major comparisons between the two squads that went to the respective Olympics and it's going to be really good to go into the 76 Olympics and then at the end of the episode obviously me and you Johnson are going to really go through what 
team we think was the best team out of the two, which is going to be a really, really interesting conversation because it's, it's very subjective, of course. But today's episode then is all about the 1976 Olympics, which consisted of many great fighters that came out of the back of it. And yet again, as per the 84 Olympics, it created boxing legends. It certainly did. Got some fantastic fighters that come out of this Olympics in '76. Some absolute icons and legends. And I mean, like like we, we spoke about with '84 team, it is, it is definitely a debate that has always lingered on when you're discussing the U.S. Olympic team, uh, which one's the best. But wow, some some absolute superstars come out of this, and, and it's going to be enjoyable just to run through how they all got on and what they did after briefly. Yeah, let's crack on. I mean, this is a great, another great little segue for the Olympic. Obviously, we haven't got no Olympics on this uh, now, you know, for 2020, 2021, so no better time to do it. Oh, absolutely. This is a great time to look back on, on the Olympics. We were all really looking forward to the Olympics this year in Tokyo uh, and obviously the teams that they were sending over there and it's just such a shame that we're not able to get that, but hopefully this will this will give people that little bit of an Olympic fix that they need and they're able to go back after the episode and look back on some of the fights and, and some of the, the aftermath of of what happened with these fighters in this particular Olympics. So what we're going to do, as always, then, with this little series that we're doing, is sort of put a bit of context to the 1976 Olympics and, and the lead-up to the 1976 Olympics. So after the boycotts and the massacre of Munich, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, hoped for an Olympic revival at Montreal, Canada in 1976. But all their wishes were not fulfilled. The city of Montreal spent extravagantly to host the Games, leaving the citizens of Canada and Quebec with a tax debt that they would be repaying for years. Many of the structures planned for the Games were not finished on time and came in over budget. Notably, the most extravagant, although a beautiful piece of architecture, was the Velodrome, which was barely even used after these particular Olympics. The Games were dubbed the Billion Dollar Circus by the Canadian press, with 29 countries, mostly African, boycotted the Montreal Games when the IOC refused to ban New Zealand after the New Zealand National Rugby Union team had toured South Africa early in 1976 in defiance of the United Nations' calls for a sporting embargo. Always something that happens at these the sort of times with boycotts. The Olympics before that in Munich was was obviously uh, was dreadful, and then obviously you had this one after, and then again once again nations boycotting obviously the African nations, uh, and then as you spoke about in '84, it was the Soviet Union and the Cubans and the USA before that in, in Moscow. It's all crazy, isn't it? This is to always be a boycott at some point uh, in and around the sort of '70s and '80s, and, and the Soviet Union were obviously a part of the '76 Olympics, and they won the most gold medals and overall most gold medals overall with Canada, who actually were obviously the host nation they didn't win a single gold they won a, a few silver and a few bronze and I believe they're the only nation to never win a gold medal on their home turf which is just a, an interesting fact there and the Israeli team she walked into the stadium in the opening ceremony wearing black ribbons in commemoration for the 1972 Munich massacre women's events were introduced to basketball handball and rowing and Mayor Jean Drapeau's efforts in hosting the Olympics were not appreciated by the Canadian population, obviously exceeding and over budget. 
And there were 11 weight classes in, in the boxing side of things for the Olympics in 1936, Summer Olympics in Montreal, Quebec. And the competition was held from the 18th to the 31st of July in preparation with the participation of 266 fighters from 54 countries. So that sounds like the boxing side of things, obviously the boycott and other stuff involved in that as well. Did a few facts in there just to get you a, a summary of what what was happening just before the Olympics started. So like we did in the last episode for the 1984 Team USA Olympic Games, we're going to talk about the categories that had competitors in from Team USA and how they got on and what the aftermath was like after this particular Olympic Games. And we'll start again with low categories, low weight categories to high weight categories, and we'll go through each one individually. And as we said at the end, after we've gone through every single one, we're going to sit down and we're going to have that big debate about whether the 1984 Olympic team was better or whether the 1976 Olympic team was better. So starting off in the light flyweight division, which is 106 pounds or 48 kilos, Lewis Curtis actually defeated Ralph Dubois, Tyron Stewart and Adrian Dennis in the trials to book his place on the plane. He was 29 years old when he competed in the Summer Olympics in Montreal and he actually lost in the first round to Poland's Henrik Sednicki and it was 5-0, so he got absolutely whitewashed in the first round. Curtis then goes on to turn professional in 1984, ironically, and he actually fought five times for the USBA titles, winning it at flyweight in 1988 against Reginald Brown and he lost the other four attempts against Kelvin Seabrooks and Gabby Canizales in 1987, Orlando Canizales in 1988, up at Super Flyweight, and then against Pedro Jose Feliciano in 1990, back down at the Flyweight division. He did challenge for the IBF Flyweight World title in 1990 against Northern Irishman Dave McCauley at the King's Hall in Belfast, losing by a unanimous decision. And he finished his professional career with a record of 15 wins Six losses, one draw, with seven coming by way of knockout. And he later went on to become a truck driver for Nabisco, an American manufacturer of cookies and snacks. <laughs> Unusual. And then, uh, obviously, he didn't. He wasn't as successful. I mean, that's what I say, was it? He made the team. I mean, that's, that's a huge achievement to make this team. And, and the one thing we'll mention is another couple of fighters that didn't actually make this team as well so you know not not the best of tournaments for, for Louis Curtis but we'll move on to the flyweight division in 112 pounds 51 kilograms and in the flyweight division we had Leonard Leo Randolph now he defeated Clarence James Rocky Winsinski and Julio Rodriguez in the trials to make the team now, he was an 18-year-old high school student with no international experience, although he did win the 1975 Golden Gloves and the 1976 AAU Championship. Now, in this division in particular, Cuba was thought to have the best two boxers in the flyweight class. Now, that was a certain Douglas Rodriguez, who won the 1974 World Championships, but then he was then beaten in the Cuban trials by Roman Duvalon. Now, who who actually had won the 1975 Pan American Games title as well? Now, seven of the 16 bouts in round two were not contested after withdrawals due to the African boycott. So once again, we're having these problems in the early stages. And Leo Randolph met the favourite, Duvalon, 
in the final. And to everyone's surprise, he won a close decision by three points to two. And he won the Olympic gold. So Leo Randolph did pick up on this, maybe not the first Olympic gold. In the boxing, it was in what we're discussing now. So Randolph did turn professional after the game. And in 1980, he actually won the WBA Super Bantamweight title. But in his first defence, he lost it by TKO to Sergio Victor Palma and then retired from boxing, ending a short career of 17 wins, two defeats, and nine knockouts. I have great faith and great admiration to God, my father. And so I just give him a praise and a thanks for letting me be at the right place at the right time and with the right team. So I, I'm just thankful for being in the right place. And it's an honor. It's an honor to hear people saying things uh, about our team and giving our team that kind of uh, admiration. Oh, my goodness. That was, oh, my. I'm like, come on, God, let's do this here. Come on, help me to do this. And uh, he was really, um, he was tall and kind of um, long arms, so I had to do a lot to try to get in on him. And that's my main objective is to put pressure on him and uh, use combinations. And so that's, and, and my mind has just kept pushing. This is what you've been going for, my motivation. And I kept encouraging myself, you could do it, you could do it, you could do it, because I had hit that point, that breaking point when you hit that wall. And um, I kept telling myself, you could do it, you could do it, all the way to the last round. So there you go, the first gold medal there in this 1976 Olympic Team USA episode from Leo Randolph going in against the favourite and coming out on top just about, but he came out on top and he got the gold medal for them in the flyweight division. So we move up to bantamweight, 119 pounds, 54 kilos. Charles Charlie Mooney beat Derek Holmes, Wayne Linon and Alici Juwawan in the U.S. trials to make it to Montreal. He was a soldier in the U.S. Army in 1976, where he'd become a three-time All-Army champion, a three-time inter-service champion, and a silver medalist in the Pan American trials, and took bronze and silver medals at the AAU Nationals. He progressed into the quarterfinals with a 5 to nothing victory over Morocco's Mohamed Rice, a 4-1 victory over Juan Francisco Rodriguez of Spain and another 5-0 whitewash of Italian Bernardo Honori before he went on to then defeat South Korean Huang Chul Soon 3-2 in the last day. Mooney decisioned the 1975 amateur European champion Viktor Rybakov of the Soviet Union 4-1 but then goes into the final and loses to Gu Yongju of North Korea by 5-0 to zero to go on to pick up the silver medal. Now, he never actually turned professional after his Olympic medal. He made the army his career and retired with 22 years active service, which ended on the 29th of August 1992 with the rank of Sergeant First Class. Now, following his army career, he founded the Charles M. Mooney Academy of Boxing in Rockville, Maryland, where he trained and coached local aspiring fighters. From 1977 to 1984, he was an athlete representative for the ABF Olympic Committee and a trainer for the 1984 Olympic boxing team. Mooney was actually the trainer of USBA cruiserweight champion Darnell Wilson, as well as two-time WBC champion Keith Holmes, WBC champion Sean Bay Mitchell, 
heavyweight Tony Thompson, William Joppy, Corey Sanders and world champion Chris Bird plus many, many more. So that is a very interesting story that has come out of the back of, of this particular competitor, Charles Mooney, who went to the Olympics, got the silver medal and then made the decision never to turn professional and then goes on to train all these world champions. I think that's quite a really good story, to be honest with you, coming out of the back of his Olympic campaign. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Charlie Mooney obviously was in the Army before that with, with his achievements in the US Army in, in the fight game. And, you know, it's funny because most of the time, silver medal as well in a tough, again, it was a tough pull, a tough group. And he came through the silver medal. You'd expect him to have a little dabble in the game, but he weren't interested. Went back straight into the army, continued his career, and then becomes a trainer. Good for Charlie. Silver medal. That's the, the next medal for the 1976 US team. Now, so we're moving upper division to the featherweight division in, in 126 pounds, uh, 57 kilos. And the next contestant was uh, David Davy Armstrong. Now, he picked up wins against John Pertell, Forrest Winchester, and Lineal Valencia in the trials to make the US Olympic team. He was a 1975 American Games featherweight gold medalist. Armstrong whitewashed Russian Antelayov Volkov and Hungarian Tibor Badari, five to nothing, whitewashed them both in the second and third round, respectively. Armstrong was unfortunate enough that he actually met the Cuban sensation, Angel. Herrera in the quarterfinals where he was beating. Herrera would actually go on, this was his first Olympic gold, and Herrera would actually go on to win gold in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow and World Amateur Championships in 78 and in 1982. We actually beat Penel Whitaker as of course a part of that 84 team. That's interesting, you've got Penel Whitaker, the, the guy that, a, a sort of mutual opponent of Herrera beating Whitaker that links in with 84 and obviously Mooney we just spoke about actually coached some of the guys in that team. It's interesting. Davey, were you surprised that your corner threw in the towel? Yes, I was at first, Howard, because uh, after he headbutted me, and the first time the doctor it took It was me, a butt, then. Yes, it was a butt. He headbutted me, and the doctor took a look at me, and he said it was okay. And then I knew he was going to go for my cutting, so I just gave it all, uh, all out, you know, that first half of that first round, and I had him gone. And But I can understand my coach's point of view. That, he uh, wants to protect you for yeah. the future. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's show and, uh, that cut. It's an ugly thing, and yeah. clearly a cut yes. from a butt. Yeah, uh, Joe Cloud, my coach, uh, longtime friend, and he's been knowing me ever since I was 10 years old. He's looking out for my health and uh, looking out my future too, Howard. And uh, I'm, I'm really sorry that this had happened because I was on my way to defeat him. I well. felt so much confidence in myself that uh, I'm just uh, too bad it happened this way, you know. Well, he, he just got lucky. I'm sorry. I really am. I know how much it meant to you, as I said. And good luck to you, and don't give up. Go back to Davey Armstrong. Davey Armstrong turned pro as a lightweight on March 28, 1980, and boxed out of the Cronk Gym in Detroit. He never lived up to his potential that he showed in the amateur in the amateur game, but he did win 22 of his first 23 fights. He never earned a title shot before he retired in 1982 and later become a bookkeeper in the city of Seattle. So, interesting. 22 out of 23 fights and he doesn't quite get that world title shot. You would expect him to at least move on to get that title shot. So, retired in 83. Yeah, that's a bit of, bit of a crazy one as well, really, when you think about what he actually achieved. Okay, he didn't go on to medal at the Olympics, but the record tells you that he had a pretty decent career. 
But for whatever reason, yeah. whether it be politics, he never was able to get a title shot out of the back of it. And then goes on to retire and becomes a bookkeeper in, in Seattle, which, again, it just seems to be, you know, you don't really hear a, a lot of stories like fighters because fighters always tend to stay in the game, most of them anyway. And so when you hear stories like this of guys that were absolutely fantastic, outstanding amateurs, then end up being bookkeepers, you just think to yourself, wow, this is just something that, I would have never expected out of a fighter because a lot of them can can never really stay away from the game in some capacity. So again, another interesting story for Davy Armstrong there in the 1976 Olympics. So we move into the lightweight category at 132 pounds or 60 kilos. Howard Edward Davis Jr. He went on to beat Adolf Kinsade. He knocked out Billy Turner and outpointed Aaron Pryor in the trials final to make the US team. Now, he had won the 1974 World Championships as a featherweight, and he'd moved up in class, where he was considered the favourite for the 1976 Olympic lightweight gold medal. And he also went on to, interestingly enough, beat Thomas Hearns, who would obviously go on to beat Tommy the Hitman Hearns, in 1976 to become the national AAU champion at 132 pounds. So straight away, there's two names that spring out to you as a boxing fan. is Aaron Pryor, beating him in the trials, and Tommy Hearns, who would both go on to have brilliant careers in their own right. So the £132 class was decimated because of the African boycott. 11 African boxers were forced to withdraw from round two, with two matches voided as both boxers withdrew. So two days before the Olympics started, Howard Davis Jr.'s mother unfortunately died of a heart attack. But Davis elected to fight on and honour his mother's memory by going on to win a gold medal. And he did so that and was virtually unchallenged, winning the first two bouts when they were stopped early and taking the semi-final and the final by unanimous decisions. In the final, he defeated the Romanian Simeon Kutov who had won a silver medal as a light welterweight at the 1974 World Championships. And for his efforts, Davis was awarded the Valbarca Trophy as the top boxer of the Olympics to go along with his gold medal. And Davis went on to finish his amateur record of 125 wins and only 5 defeats. And of course, he turned professional, had a long and established career, retiring in 1996 with a career record, 36 wins, 6 losses and 1 draw, 14 knockouts on his record. Four of them losses came in his four world title attempts. But he never actually managed to get that world title, that coveted world title. So all that amateur pedigree, winning the gold medal, winning the Valbarca trophy. But unfortunately, it just never seemed to translate into the professional game. Although his record is respectable, he never was able to capture that world title. Yeah, it's interesting now. Uh, he was obviously a fantastic amateur beating those two, you know, Pryor and, and Hearns. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, we've, we've touched on Pryor and Hearns in, in our uh, legendary night and career profiles pods and, and both of them mentioned Howard Davis defeats don't they as well and he, yep. he figures highly and obviously you know he goes goes on to pick up the gold medal I mean anyone on M2 I believe could have probably picked up that gold medal as well to be honest with you that was a strong division for the United States and obviously you know the pro game is weird sometimes you just turn over and they, you, there's, there's fighters that just haven't got that ability to you know, he's done well he's got a good career it's just, just that next stage isn't it that next level in the pro game which sometimes is outstanding amateurs just can't tend to can't do I think also what's really sad about the story of 
Howard Davies Jr. is that 2015, only five years ago, he ended up finding out in the summer of that year that he had incurable late-stage lung cancer and unfortunately passed away on December the 30th, 2015 at the only the age of 59, which is a really sad end to the story. And he was also involved with a lot of MMA fighters over the years. He served as a boxing trainer to guys like Chuck Liddell, and he was fighters from the American top team as well, and he was a sports commentator, a public speaker. So outside of the ring, he did go on to have a really well-established career. It was just a shame that he never was able to capture that world title. We'll move on to the light worldweight division, 137 pounds, 62 kilos, and it's a certain Sugar Ray Leonard who defeated Ronnie Shield, Samuel Bonds, and Bruce Curry in the trial to make the US team. Now, the 1974 world champion was Uganda's Yunub Kowali. People will know him. He was a, a fantastic professional. Now, he turned professional early in 76 because of the African boycott, which actually prevented him from fighting in this tournament uh, in the Olympics area. He would have blatantly have fought Leonard at some point. The 1972 gold medalist had been Sugar Ray Sears. And obviously, we did get a certain Sugar Ray, and obviously, with Sugar Ray Leonard from the United States team back for this, this Olympics. And he, he held, obviously, numerous titles by the time he made it to the Olympics. He was twice 1974-75 North American amateur champion, twice 1973-74 Golden Gloves champion, twice 1974-75 AAU champion, and he won a gold medal in the 1975 Pan Games. Ray advanced to the final by whitewashing literally all five of his opponents. You can pretty much watch most of those fights on YouTube. There is, I can't think of videos, but you have to scale it a little bit. You will find, you can find his fights. And to his face, the relatively inexperienced Cuban, which was Andreas Aldama, the final was another one-sided dominant display from Leonard, and he won five to nothing, and of course picked up the gold medal. Obviously, Sugar Ray Leonard was a he was a huge, huge star, and everybody wanted to sign him. And Leonard did originally actually state that he would not turn pro, but instead wanted to accept a scholarship and attend the University of Maryland. But the financial lure of professional boxing, of course, was too much for him to not turn pro, and he did turn pro in 1977. He went on to have one of the greatest and longest professional careers of any Olympic boxer. He won his first title in 1979, the NABF Worldweight Crown, and then would eventually win titles in five different weight classes. One of those came in 1981 when he actually defeated Kowale, the man who did not get to fight in Montreal for the WBA in the ring, light middleweight crowns. And of course, we all know, I mean, we could go on and on, on about the, the legend that is Sugar Ray Leonard. Fought Wilfred Benitez, he fought Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns, and Marvis Martin Hanger, just to name a few. Finished his pro career with 36 3 and 1 with 25 KOs. I mean, what can we say about Sugar Ray, Sean? Sugar Ray is probably one of, or arguably, the best Olympian to come out of the the USA. I mean, people will have the debate. We talked about Pernell Whitaker in the last episode being one of the best in terms of what he achieved outside of his career, and that's a conversation we will have at the end of the episode, of course. But my word, Sugar Ray Leonard in that Olympics was phenomenal. The videos that you can go and watch are phenomenal. You see the blistering hand speed, uh, the way he was able to just get in and get out so quick. Absolutely fantastic. A real, real good amateur boxer and translated it so so well into the professional game of course winning the gold medal in 1976 in montreal was truly 
one of the greatest achievements of my life. Because, and the reason I say that is, is because it wasn't about money, it wasn't about anything else other than representing myself and my country. And that too is the ultimate for any amateur boxer. But then again, you think about this. Uh, a lot of guys can say that I was, I was world champion, professional world champion, because you get breaks and this and that happens. But very few people in this world can say I was Olympic gold medal winner. Very few can say that. Moving on then to the welterweight category at 146 pounds, 66 kilos. Clinton, the Sheriff Jackson, defeated Roger Leonard twice before outpointing Roosevelt Green in the trials to make it to Montreal. He also won a gold medal in the 1975 Pan American Games as a welterweight. Now after a 5 to nothing victory over Poland's Zygmigenu Kika in the second round, he knocked out Wesley Felix in the first round of the next stage before eventually missing out on a medal when he actually lost 3-2 to Venezuelan Pedro Gamaro in the quarterfinals. Jackson actually had 221 amateur fights and finished his amateur career with a record of 206 wins and only 15 losses. So after this, he decided to turn professional after the 76 games in Montreal, boxing professionally from 1979 to 1985 he twice fought for titles the usba middleweight title in 1982 against frank fletcher and the nabf middleweight title in 1984 against james Shuler. but he lost both of them bouts and he retired after losing five of seven fights and finishing with a record of 25 wins seven losses and 19 knockouts interestingly in 1989 he was convicted of kidnapping, and is currently serving a life sentence in Union Springs, Alabama. Prison inmate number hashtag double zero one five four double eight zero. According to Sports Illustrated, he was still serving a life sentence as of January two thousand and fifteen. Wow, what an interesting story. We do we we had a few of these come up in eighty four, didn't we? You know, you got all these guys, and they're not going to all end up like Sugar Ray Leonard, that's for sure. And didn't not not a good. Good, good ending for Jackson, who's obviously currently still up in in, in prison. Yeah, sad one that. But uh, moving on to the light middleweight division in the 157 pounds, 71 kilograms, we come to Charles Dexter Chuck Walker Jr., aka White Chocolate. He actually outpointed John B. Williamson, Willie Taylor, and Henry Bunch in the trials to make the U.S. United States Olympic team. Now he had. Only a brief career as an amateur, winning a bronze medal in the 1975 Pan American Games and the AAU champion that year at the light middleweight. His teammate, Leon Neon Spinks, commented of him, referring to obviously the, the knocking about of him in, in the Olympic Village. He said he's the best dancer, was the only white guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chuck, obviously, he could boogie a bit. And, and after. A bye in the second round, Walker did actually lose three to Poland's Jersey Redbicki, who actually went on to win the Olympic gold. So he got a bit unlucky with the draw. Obviously, he finds out fighting Jersey, the Polish guy in in the second round. It was, it was the one of the closest fights he had. He, he what was quite a few. So obviously, it was a close one. He, he, Chuck could have almost got a decision there, but unfortunately, he, he ended up coming up against the guy that goes on to win the gold. Uh, Walker made his pro debut in November 1977 in Mesa, Arizona, and fought 
through to 1980 before coming back to fight as a pro in 1984 to 1986. Now, he ended his pro career with a record of all the one, 11 wins, one draw, and one defeat, with all his bouts taking place in either Mesa or Conroe, Texas. Now, even during his boxing career, Walker also worked as a professional tap dancer, obviously, Neil mentioned that earlier, and he later became a film writer, producer, and director in Conroe. Again, another interesting story about another guy that had so much talent in the amateur side of the sport, but wasn't able to, to turn it through in the time that he really needed to turn it through to. So he didn't actually medal in, in that particular Olympics, but he did go on to lose to the guy that went on to win the Olympic gold in Jersey Rybiki. So fair play to him. He went on, he turned over, he took 13 bouts throughout his career and just really never made anything of the professional career but went on to become a film writer. Again, just the really interesting stories, these, when Good. you don't really know the full context of, of some of these guys from the 76 Olympics. You think about the guys like Sugar Ray Leonard and the Howard Davis Juniors and the Spinxes who we're going to come on to shortly. You, you think about these guys. You don't think about guys like Charles Dexter Chuck Walker. You don't think about any of these. So it's interesting that we get these little stories into it. So moving into that middleweight division now, at 165 pounds, which was 75 kilos, we now move on to one of the competitors that would be successful in his professional career, a guy that we've done a career profile on, on the Career Profiles podcast. It's Michael Spinks Jinx. He actually went on to stop Lindell Holmes and outpointed Jerome Bennett and Keith Broom at the trials to make the US Olympic team. Now, Michael was not nearly so well known in 1976 as his older brother was, Leon. Michael had only one title to his name at the time, which was the 1976 Golden Gloves Association of America champion. But he found himself on the podium at Montreal with a gold medal around his neck after knocking down and stopping Soviet Union's Rufat Riskayev in the first round before stopping him in the third to go on to win the gold medal. So when he turned professional, Michael Spinks, of course, as we know, or for anybody that listens to career profiles will know, he would go on to have a very successful career and is considered as one of the best light heavyweights of all time. Michael Spinks held the world championships in two weight classes including the undisputed light heavyweight title from 1983 to 1985 and the lineal heavyweight title from 1985 to 1988 and ended his professional career with 31 wins, only one defeat to Mike Tyson and 21 by way of knockout, he had a fantastic career. We've spoken in great detail about Michael Spinks' life inside and outside of the ring on the Career Profiles podcast, so please go and check that out because it doesn't do him justice. This little snapshot of Michael Spinks doesn't do him justice, but that Career Profiles podcast does, so please go and check that out. Yeah, absolutely. We, we go into great detail, and, and he rightly is one, to be considered one of the best like, heavyweights of all time which is some statement, considering the names that it sh- shared that division with him. And what an am- amazing... I mean, what he, we, you know, we've done Larry Holmes as well. So, you know, he gets a mention in there as well. And Tyson. <laughs> People may remember Jinx Michael as, as you say, the guy that came out of the Olympics with a gold medal, the guy that beat Larry Holmes. But a lot of the youth only remember him for that Tyson defeat. So... He did a lot more before that, and obviously, yeah, do check out career profiles and what a great fight. So, moving on to the light heavyweight 
division. Obviously, Michael was in the middles at this point. So he moved into the heavyweight, and it was his brother, and it was Leonard Leon Spinks Jr. Now, he actually got a walkover against Reginald Phillips, uh, and he stopped Charles Smith and outpointed John Davis in the trials to progress the Olympic team. Now, by the 1976 Olympics, Leon had already had 135 amateur bouts. He had won the 1975 AAU title and lost in the finals of the 1975 Pan-American Games. At the Montreal Olympics, he seemed awkward in comparison to the polished Europeans and Cubans. But he won all of his bouts with these, knocking out the Cuban world champion Sixto Soria in the finals to win the gold medal. He, again, I mean, you just spoke about Michael, he did, he moved over, obviously, to the pro game. And this is, this is what makes Leon even more unusual, because he turned pro. And when he turned pro, he basically put on a few more pounds and moved up to the heavyweight division. He was alive, he was stranded in heavyweights. And on February 15, 1978, running seven pro fights, he took on Muhammad Ali to win the heavyweight title. And obviously, in one of the biggest ups, upsets in boxing history at the time. And in September 1978, Ali... Again, fought Spinks, and obviously it didn't work out for him. He lost a very close decision against him. Spinks' reign as heavyweight champion was the shortest in history by 212 days. Leon Spinks continued to box professionally and tried to win the cruiserweight championship. It's probably a division if it was out when he was fighting in the 70s. I don't believe the cruiserweight division was around at the time. He probably could have done even more. Uh, but never, obviously, matched his early professional success. He fought until 1995. It weren't panning out well. He was more or less a punching bag at this point. Ended his career 26-17-3 with 14 KOs. Now, Spinks suffered financial troubles, troubles after retirement, had a brief spell as a professional wrestler, lived in a shelter for the homeless. He later became a janitor at the YMCA in Columbus, Nebraska where he was reported to be suffering from dementia. That's, that was the last I heard of him. Son Corey Spinks, obviously, followed in the family's boxing tradition and held world titles in both the world weight and light middleweight titles, but a tragic ending for Leon. So Leon Spinks is a, a sad tale, really, when you think about it, because he had all the pedigree, went in, absolutely whitewashed everybody to win the gold medal at the Olympics, went on to cause one of the biggest upsets in boxing history, beating Muhammad Ali, only to lose that title quite shortly afterwards and never would go on to do anything more significant in the sport. Some might say that was a fluke or a one-off or a one-hit wonder. And that's a shame because the amateur pedigree and the way he whitewashed everyone in the Olympics, you wouldn't even dare say that. But that's how it came across as he went through and lost to Ali and then the way his career sort of went on a downslide. In terms of him at the moment, he's suffering dementia, but he is also suffering with cancer at the moment. It was only reported not too long ago that he'd been diagnosed with cancer. So it's not looking too good as we record this episode for for Leon Spinks and, and his life, which is a real shame really, because when you watch interviews of Leon over the years, you can see how charismatic the guy is. You can see that there's just there was just so much more there that could have been. And it's a real shame that although he came out of there all guns blazing, Olympic champion, world heavyweight champion, obviously at one point, it just it's just a real, real sad state of affairs as to where his his boxing career and his life is ending up. Very sad. It is really sad. So we move in 
to the money division, the division that everybody loves. It's the heavyweight division, of course. £229, 104 kilograms. John, Johnny Tate, a.k.a. Big John, beat Woody Clark and Marvin Stinson on points before knocking out Mike Dokes in the third round at the US Trials to make it into the Olympic team. Now, as an amateur, Johnny Tate never quite seemed able to win the big title, although he was always close. He was the runner-up in the 1975 Golden Gloves and the 1975 Pan American Games. So at the Olympics in 1976, he fought Cuban legend Teofilo Stevenson in the semi-finals, but the great Cuban knocked him out and Johnny Tate would go on to end up picking up the bronze medal as a result of that. So Teofilo Stevenson was... For just a bit of context to that, he's one of the Cuban heavyweight fighters that never went on to turn professional. One of the guys that even, it was reported that Muhammad Ali was a little bit worried about turning over. And there was potential fights with them two that were going to happen over the years. It never materialised. Teofilo Stevenson's probably one of the best, if not the best, Cuba has ever had out of all their amateur pedigree and their amateur system that they have over there. So Johnny Tay himself, after this, he had a very mixed career as a professional. In 1979, by defeating Ken Norton, he laid claim to the WBA heavyweight title after Muhammad Ali retired. But Tay held the title only for a year before losing it to Mike Weaver, losing via a 15th round knockout. In addition... Larry Holmes was the WBC champion at the time and considered by everybody as the real heavyweight champion. Tate never again had a title fight after losing his championship. He fought professionally up until 1988, finishing his career with a record of 34 wins, 3 losses and 23 wins by way of knockout. An addiction to cocaine contributed to some serious financial problems and after convictions for assault and theft, he resorted to begging on the streets of Knoxville. In 1998, he suffered a massive stroke caused by a brain tumour whilst driving his pickup truck. The truck ended up crashing into a utility pole, killing Tate instantly and seriously injuring two other passengers. The Knox County Medical Examiner stated that Tate had been using cocaine regularly in the last 24 hours of his life. That is an absolute crazy story. That is probably the craziest story out of all the competitors of this 1976 Olympic Games. Oh, absolutely. It really is, isn't it? And it's tragic. The unfortunate thing was he did Stevenson in the semi-final. No doubt, looking at the, the semi-final lineup, and I think he would have won that and got to the final and he could have been fighting for a goal. He would have definitely come away with the silver. They would have been one up. I mean, he did pick up a medal, but to fight, as you mentioned, the Cuban legend that is Teofilo Stevenson, he, it was just unfortunate. Sometimes it's the luck of the draw, isn't it? We had one earlier with Herrera, but, you know, find Herrera early in the, in the competition. Sometimes you just have the guys that are so far ahead, you just, you're not going to get any further. But what an awful, tragic ending for Johnny Tate. Uh, meant to some great names in there, like Ali and, and Norton and Weaver, Holmes. What, what a dreadful way. To, to die uh, yeah it just it just doesn't always end up as, as you know it's not always rosy at the end of these Olympics I think people have the assumption that you win a gold medal bronze medal still whatever medal you can pick up and you, they, I think people just assume you're just going to go on to be a star and earning a load of money I think both these pods I think we've shown that um, 
it doesn't always end up like it actually can end up really tragic for these guys and yeah I mean what, what a great team though. what a fantastic team so I suppose the next thing is show the round up of the whole thing which is which is the best thing I mean it's a crazy one I mean well, there is a little bit we can mention at the end I mean the, the 76 team would not only win five golds a silver and a bronze it would also produce five future world champions including three heavyweight champions and two hall of famers in the, and then obviously the question is, is this team great in the 84? Well, this is the big question, isn't it, now? Is the team from 1976 greater than the team from the 1984 Olympic Games, who put up together an even more incredible display regarding its medal count, as we did in the last episode? That particular group in 1984 won nine gold medals, a silver and a bronze, and six of them went on to become world champions, as we covered in the last episode. So how do you decide which team is better? Is it the number of world titles that these fighters won? How many became Hall of Famers? But also, interestingly, does the boycott from the Eastern Bloc and Cuba need to be accounted for? Or is there another way of, of debating it? Now, Sugar Ray Leonard, this is what he had to say about this question that he was asked. And he said, you look at... Our team, up and down, the lineup. we had guys who could fight. Without really thinking about it a lot, I'd say our team was the best. But when you hear the names of the guys who fought on the 84 team, whew, let me tell you, it's hard to pick. I'm not really sure, honestly. So that's Sugar Ray Leonard, who was probably the shining star of the 1976 Olympic Games, the one that went on to do the most significant things out of all of them, much like Pernell Whitaker did in the 84 Olympics. So it's very subjective. How do you decide it? The number of world titles are won. You mean you look at the 76 squad, and as you rightly pointed out there, five future world champions, three heavyweight champs, two Hall of Famers, the 84 squad, of course. You had Penel Whitaker went on to win undisputed titles in his career, but then you also had guys that didn't end up going on to do as much. It's so, so difficult. I think, for me personally, I would favour the 1984 Olympic US boxing team as the best out of the lot. Now, I'm basing this, for me, based on what they achieved in the Olympics and overall, between all competitors, what they actually went on to achieve in their professional careers. So I, I picked the 1984 Olympic US boxing team as the one that I think was better than the 1976 team. Now, of course, there's, there's always going to be people that are going to argue the toss about that, and it's very subjective, but that is my pick. I think 1984 team trumps the 1976 team. If you really wanted to go even deeper into it, you could go as deep as putting these guys up against each other, the guys that fought at heavyweight in 1976 against the guys that fought at heavyweight in 1984. If you really wanted to go one step further and make it even more theoretical and interesting, but I think based on what the 84 team did at that 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, of course, for me, they are the better team. You look at that team, I mean, what a, what a fantastic team. With, with what, just thinking about Melvin Taylor and Randa Holyfield. Obviously, Penel Whitaker was, was an absolute star. It's, it's really difficult. I mean, because then I suppose the stars of them all, obviously, you've got Penel, who's obviously the star of that 84, and then you've got Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, he was that star at seventy-six team, and what the Stinks brothers went on to achieve as well. I mean, if you stuck Leon, 
Spinks and all of Michael Spinks in the ring with Van der Holyfield and throws at heavyweight. That'd be interesting. I mean, I don't think, I mean, you think about Leon Spinks at cruiserweight, because I think that would have been his best weight. I think that was, it just it wasn't around at the time when the cruiserweight division was there. If you'd have fought a cruiserweight and, and you could stick in the ring with Van der Holyfield, who wins that? I mean, when, when Leon was on, on fire, it was a fantastic fight to watch. It's a really hard one, isn't it? I, I mean, I think you've got, if you're going to speak on Olympic sense, if it's just Olympics talking about and not what they go on to do in the programs, I would favour the 76 team, literally because there was no the Eastern Bloc. I think the Eastern Bloc and the Cubans not being boycotting the Olympics and not being in the Olympics in 84 made a huge, significant difference on how many gold medals they won. I'm not saying that they wouldn't have won those medals, but there were certain fighters within that that won the gold that I don't believe would have done so if a certain few Cubans and a few from the Eastern Bloc were there. And we see that in 1716, you know, there's a few Cubans and, and then Eastern European countries that, that were there that, that stopped them and beat them. So I'd say Olympic things, I'd go to 1716. I think that is, I think, just because they had everyone there, apart from the African boycott, there was no other major nations that were involved, even the Bulgarian teams and stuff like that. But in, and in a sense of what they went on to do in the pros, I would probably favour the 84 team because I think what, what they did after, I mean, with Amanda Holyfield, Pennell Whitaker, and I think, I think that was just Meldrick Taylor was a bit better. But saying that, I mean, you've got Sugar Hill, who's an absolute superstar. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's tricky. I, I would favour 84 team as a whole for what they went and done in the pro games. I would probably favour the 17 team in the Olympics. I'm going to sit on the fence. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought. I, I still feel like the 70, I'm going to favour the 76 just because Sugar Ray Leonard's in there. Like, you know, the Spink brothers were brilliant. So I think that's probably part of the reason why I do side with them in general. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a tough question. As you say, I think you could, you could I think I, we did, I mean, I was starting to do that, particularly in the weights, and it didn't quite work out because you end up with, it, it just doesn't work out. All the top fights come through all that at the end, and it's just a matter of who you think's better. It's really a tough one because we're talking about absolute legends of the sport. So. I'm going to say 76 Olympics and 84 for the prize. Well, one thing's for sure, from doing these two episodes for the 76 Olympics and the 84 Olympics, is what all it's, all it's taught me is that then them two eras, them two Olympic Games, were the most successful that the USA has ever had at Olympic boxing, which is a precedent that was set at that period of time and, and has not been replicated since and I think they are actually due a really good Olympics unfortunately the 2020 Olympics were moved back to 2021 because of the coronavirus of course and maybe we will get some really great USA fighters coming through next year but then obviously you've got the, the Cubans that are still there Cubans have got one of the best if not the best amateur system in boxing as a whole so when you've got the cubans in the olympics and then saying that in this day and age you've got the the kazakhstanis who are really coming into their own in the olympics as well so it'll be really interesting when the olympics do take place next as to how team usa do after doing the back of these two episodes which were really interesting and it's just taught us where the origins of some of these absolute legends have come from so if you've not heard about some of these legends origins and now you've heard a little bit more into it and obviously we've done career profiles on some of the fighters in here and they've featured in some of our legendary nights episodes as well so that just goes to show you you know what sort of a precedent they set in their amateur and professional careers and it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and go 
through these two particular teams respectively and talk about what they did and what they achieved in the sport and, and also obviously what happened for them afterwards. There's some absolutely sad stories uh, as a result of, of what happened to them in later on down the line but ultimately what we've learned from these two episodes is that at one point in time the USA couldn't be touched for boxing they were the leaders in amateur boxing people will argue Cuba and the Soviet Union but these two episodes to me put that perspective of Team USA were the team to beat in the Olympics at that period of time I mean, just just the amount of gold medals they picked up. As I think we mentioned before, but they went to four gold medals in the next two Olympics after that. So it just shows you that um, something is not quite right. Whether they they stopped investing in their amateurs, I'm not quite sure what the, the problem is there. Whereas the Brits, uh, we would would I could only dream of having teams like this, but yet we've had successes ourselves recently uh, with some of our fighters that are now still currently knocking around and hold world titles or, or former world champions. So. In respect, we've uh, we've now I think we've surpassed them, which is something obviously you'd never have thought. But I mean, it's just it's it's crazy how how much you two fabulous teams and and in between, I mean, what could have happened if they had gone to the 1980 Olympics as well? That's another fault I always think of. Is how successful would that team would have been? Because obviously they would have still been around. They had some fantastic fighters that eventually came through. So it's another interesting fault as to who would have made that team. I mean, that's one thing I didn't bother investigating. I'm sure there would have been some fantastic names there as well. Just a great couple of episodes. It's nice to talk about the Olympics away from the coronavirus and we know the Olympics was coming up. We're all looking forward to it. We've had some some stars on our side. We'll see what happens with the US team come 2021, which I believe it will take place now. So I'm going to be interested in doing more of the Olympic episodes and I think for fight fans, we want to know if you've enjoyed these two particular episodes that we've covered. So please let us know on social media at BTR Boxing Pod. And also make sure you've subscribed to the podcast by checking us out on Apple Podcasts or any of the available podcasting apps out there. If you've listened to the episodes and you've enjoyed them, of course, leave us a rating and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because they truly do help keep us in the top 10 of the UK sports news chart. So get on there and get rating and get reviewing. I think if we're going to do another Olympic Games I think for us as Brits we want to do 2012 that was the best year for for Team GB as a whole in the Olympics and also for boxing as well so I'd be quite interested to do that but fight fans of course let us know let us know what you think about it let us know if you've enjoyed it thank you for all the recent ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts keep bringing them in there we really really appreciate you we hope you've enjoyed this episode about the 1976 USA Olympic boxing team Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.